You're listening to Startup Acquisition Stories, a podcast featuring the stories of startup founders and buyers who have successfully gone through an acquisition process using Acquire.com, the world's number one startup acquisition marketplace. To date, Acquire.com has helped thousands of startups get acquired and facilitated hundreds of millions in closed deal volume. Here's your host, Andrew Gostecki. All right. I'm here with Jason, the former founder of a podcast company which was recently acquired. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Long-term fan, first-time podcast guest. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And before we kind of dive into things, do you want to give a quick introduction of yourself to people that may not know you? Yeah. Um, I, my name is Jason Arn Scott. You can pretty much find me under that name. I'm, a, I guess, a serial entrepreneur, although I've never done any business in serials. Um, but this... <laughs> well, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I love business. I, I started my first company when I was five. I started a circus in the uh, council estate that I grew up in. I um, built a, a beauty pageant, which I sold, a swimming school in Southeast Asia, um, an event company, a med tech company, and then got into two smaller companies in the last uh, through, uh, last eight years, I actually just realized. And um, I had the, the great opportunity of finding the hard ways to do pretty much everything until this recent acquisition, which was was this most simple sort of acquisition I've ever done. And it was obviously thanks to your platform, which is why I'm happy to be here and share any knowledge I have with your audience. That's great to hear. Well, um, you know, huge, huge congrats on the acquisition. So I want to, I want to definitely talk about that, obviously. So tell me about, um, a podcast company. What did it do? What problem did it solve? Um, what's kind of the, the brief background on that? It's actually quite a strange story and I'll try and make it as quick as possible. I, I try to launch a startup um, eight years ago, almost eight years, two months to the day. And the idea was I was in events. I was doing very well in events. I was top 100 in the world in events. And I went blind for three days, three complete days of darkness. And I went to an optometrist and they said, your eyes are working. So it must be your brain. I went and had multiple tests. And eventually, thanks to an MRI, they found scars on my brain and on my spine. And those already that haven't picked up, spoiler alert, multiple scars, multiple sclerosis was the thing that they found. Um, on me that I have this incurable immune disease. And my neurologist said, listen, you need to avoid stress like the plague. And the fifth most stressful job in the world is events. And I'm I'm not very smart. I mean, I say this to everyone. I'm very hardworking and I'm not scared to execute like a mofo, but I'm not the most intelligent person. So I was like, oh, I'll just, I'll start a tech company then and get out of events. Oh <laughs> man. So you move, yeah. you move from five to number one. Exactly. One, two, um, and three. So silly. It was absolutely so silly. But I thought if I do a if I do a LinkedIn version of for venues where venues can see in real time who's looking at them, they can respond in real time, it can up their closure rates, it'll help with how quick people who need workspaces and creative places can book space. And I was from that industry. I'd just done, you know, I think 12 years in that space. Um, I think at that stage, it might've been eight years. So I launched this company. I know absolutely nothing, but I decided that I want to start a podcast at the exact same time so that I can share my learnings as I'm progressing. So maybe it'll inspire someone else who's starting out at 40 into a whole new industry. And that was called The Guestless Podcast, and it's still available, I believe, on Spotify. And um, spoiler alert, by the end of season one, episode 10, I uh, it was a fiasco. It was an absolute failure. Not the podcast so much, but the company itself, my CTO, when asked what language she was building my tech in, he said English. Um, English is not a language. Yeah, <laughs> no. Well, like, uh, te technically correct, but not yeah. 
what you want to hear. No, especially not when I'd given him a massive salary and was kind of sitting back waiting for him to build this LinkedIn platform. So I was very naive. Um, I had never even watched an episode of Silicon Valley, which I'm sure is one of your favorite shows, given your man, Patrice Comba. But um, I, I, I sort of stopped everything for about four days. And after four days, I sort of came back onto LinkedIn and started looking around. And I had over 60 emails or LinkedIn DMs. And they all said, love the podcast, learned about an MVP, learned about lean market strategy, learned about how to get your first client, all the stuff that I was kind of explaining as I was learning through the podcast. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this properly. And I reached out to the top five podcasts at the time. It was Mario Folio, Lewis Howes, John Lee Dumas, and Pat Flynn. A couple of them had courses. I signed up for all their courses. I signed up for the masterclasses. I signed up for everything. And I'd already studied radio broadcasting years and years ago, back in 2000, back 1998. I mean, that's how old I am. And um, so I was like, I, I can do this. I know I can do this. And at the time, it was 2015. You know, being a white guy with a microphone, you were already 50% up there. You had a really good chance. If you could have a baseball cap and a hoodie, you were pretty much going to be the next Joe Rogan. So I was super excited about starting a podcast and making that my next business. I turned that into a business. And by the end of season two, I'd found, I think, 11 ways to monetize the podcast. Um, and someone reached out to me from American Express that said they did this thing called the top 100 small businesses in the UK. And I should send this idea that all I have is a laptop and interconnection and a microphone. And I'm doing these numbers that I'm doing and no staff and no team. And I said, sure. And I sent it forward and I ended up winning. And I went to number 10 Downing Street, which is like the British version of the White House, only harder to get into, if I'm honest. Um, and um, I, I I couldn't believe that this was a thing. And, and I, I just focused on that predominantly, probably for the next three years, I want to say. In the third year, I got a call from an incredible author and entrepreneur, a woman called Charles Wasserman, OBE. And she said, listen, I'm doing a, a massive event. And Lewis Howes, the biggest podcast of the time, is going to be on stage. He's just hit 100 million downloads. He's just been on Ellen DeGeneres. But he's, he's told me it took him five years to monetize his podcast. You monetized on episode one, season two. I think it'd be great to have you on the stage and talk about what you're doing and how you did it. And I was like, yeah, if I can share this knowledge of the only real social media platform we've got, I'll jump up on stage. So I did. Uh, firstly, bad mistake. Like going in after that man is very difficult. It's it's like being the supporting act for the Beatles or <laughs> Harry Styles. It's just, I'm not six foot two, super good looking and American. There's certain energy that, and he's an ex-like professional sportsman. Um, but, but at the same time, I could sort of go up and beat my imposter syndrome by going, look at my work. Like I sold 55,000 copies of my first book thanks to the podcast, just through my audience. I built a podcast that used the audience to raise money on a crowdfunding campaign. And we raised 2.1 million US dollars. Like I had all these things that I could point at and go, I've done all this, even though I've never had a massive audience for my podcast. And I was asked by the team that was there, you have to sell a course. It's one of the things people do on these stages. I didn't know anything about this. And I said, well, I don't have a course. And they said, well, you're going to sell a course and then you're going to go up and build a course and we'll help you get it out there. But that's what you do on these stages. And I built a course and people did quite well, but not as many people started a podcast and I couldn't understand it. And I went back and I said, what else can I do? And they said, oh, you need to do a masterclass and you need to charge more money because you know they pay more, they'll care more. And I was like, okay. And I did a masterclass and people still didn't start a podcast. And then I interviewed um, 
everyone that took the masterclass. And I said, where did I go wrong? And they said, we don't need a, a course. We need a podcast company. We need someone to come in and do all the stuff so we can just be the talent. We can just do this. We can be pretty faces on a screen with a microphone and internet connection. We don't want to do the production, the distribution, the content creation, the content repurposing, the blogs, the transcripts, the Twitter threads. Like that, that needs to be someone else's job. And I kind of said, okay, I have enough friends who complain about having to get a job, to pay for someone to look after their kids, I can teach them to do those jobs and I can start a podcast company. And that's where it came from. That is an incredible story. Yeah, I'm looking at your company's website site now. So in terms of, so you essentially help people launch and monetize their podcasts. Is that accurate? Yeah, except we only do that for businesses and we handpick all our clients or they will soon handpick all their clients. So that's also part of the sort of magic sauce is the fact that we don't take everyone. Everyone has to go through an application process and an interview process. And we kind of understand what the success metric is. And then if we believe we can hit that success metric normally in one to three seasons, and again, a season is 10 episodes and a trailer. Um, then we take it on. And if we can't, we'll we'll do the next season for free until we hit that metric. That is, that's awesome. That's a great way to ensure that you're only taking on work that, you know, you can really drive results for instead of yeah. having clients that are just, I, I really like that point because I think, you know, if you try to be everything to everyone, you're usually end up being average to everyone. So really, you know, honing in on, you know, potential podcasts that you know you can grow. I think that, that's really smart. Um, let me ask you another question. When was like the moment where you were like, oh crap, like I, I really have something here. Like I really found product market fit. Customers are coming in. Do you remember that moment if you have one? I can remember that moment so well. <laughs> and it's going to sound terrible. And I apologize to everyone that listens to this. I, after about a year, and I was still doing something else on the side. I was I was trying to build a, a, a marketplace. Again, I was trying to do this software for venues thing because I'd failed so, so massively the last time I couldn't get it out of my system. So this business was just running on the side. People were taking on and I'd get a call saying, hey, someone's made it through the application. Can you do a quick call with them? And I'd jump on and I'd do the call and I'd see if they hit my metrics. And then I'd put them through a system. And I did it for one of my podcasters and I got her through season one and she got a massive potential sponsor deal, a sponsorship deal with Lego. And she said to me, can I tell you, you seem to be all over the shop. Can I just, I, I'm not going to take up this, this opportunity uh, with the podcast, but I'd love to come in and help you create a, a process system. And I'm obsessed with business. And I was like, oh my God, like McDonald's. Like, yeah, if you could come in and give me a proper process, I think that will change things. So she came in and she did a Trello board and she did a notion and all these things that I wasn't doing. It didn't really care about. And then I, um, again, just left it. And she called me up about two, three months later. And she said, how's it going? And I said, I, I actually have no idea. I think everyone's happy. I haven't had a single support ticket. No one's complained, but I'll send some emails out and I'll see how it's going. And, um, <laughs> and, and it was going really well. Um, but it's sort of feeling like work. And again, I realized how lucky I am to say that, but that was the truth. I just felt like I was doing so many of these calls and emails. So I upped my price. I am um, I five times my price for, for working with us. And people kept coming. And then I five times it again. So I 10 X my price from the first year to the third year and people still came. I had product market fit and we had never paid for an advert. We still haven't, or they haven't an advert, a piece of marketing, nothing. We've got like 16 backlinks to the website. That's definitely 
word of mouth. Yeah, that's, that's product market fit. If you can take your product today and 10x the price and no one complains, you have very people. Well, number one, you're undercharging definitely, but people see a lot of value in what you're offering. So that is that is an incredible story. So you built this this successful company. You you know enjoy running it. Uh, what made you decide to to sell the business? Uh, two parts. So the first was exactly like I said. It just didn't feel. I'm originally from Cape Town, South Africa, and I'm a I'm a from a poor white family who had to work for everything that we achieved, right? And I'm an immigrant, first first generation immigrant to the United Kingdom, where I currently am. And I I'm just used to working hard for my money, and I didn't feel like I was working hard for. And I know that sounds ridiculous, and maybe I'll kick myself down the line. But I I thought someone else could come into this, and it'll they'll love it. They'll they'll have the passion for it that I that I no longer have. I feel like I'm I'm doing something I'm really good at that I've been doing for so long that I don't feel like I'm really good at it. I feel like if I wasn't good at it eight years in, I would have to be not paying attention. And I didn't feel like the, to be, again, to be completely brutally honest, I didn't feel like there was a challenge in it anymore. Um, I didn't have my own show for the first time in like three years. I didn't have other shows that I was helping out so much. And you did a tweet. So this is actually all your fault, which is why I said I'd do this. You did <laughs> oh no, <tweet>. my fault. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you did a tweet talking what about- I do. You did where you said, I I found a thing, I worked in a thing, um, and I, I think you said I, I raised 200000 through my agency business, and then I decided to build a platform. And that was it. I was like, if I could sell this for a certain number, um, I can build a platform solving bigger problems that feels more challenging, that helps more people. And instead of helping 100 people a year, I can maybe help thousands of people a year, maybe that- tens of thousands or millions. That is incredible. It sounds like you're on your way. You know, you got, you got the business sold. So I, I, I I love that. And yeah, that's kind of how I, you know, started my first quote unquote successful startup was I had a smaller job board before that. And I sold that for 30,000, which felt like 30. I always joke. Um, I was in college, so it felt like $30 trillion. Uh, Like it literally felt, you know, we, you know, me and my friends celebrated and everything, but I used that as seed funding for, you know, to build a a larger business. So I always love when entrepreneurs, you know, find, you know, expertise in one area, but they uncover a way to build something bigger through, you know, maybe a smaller prior business. Um, So walk me through, I'd I'd love to know um, just the acquisition process. So, um, you know, you, you list the business business for sale on acquire.com. Uh, what happens within the first two weeks? What was your experience? It was incredible. Like it was absolutely, and I don't say that to be braggadocious or, or or to big you up in any way. It, we had a phenomenal response. Now, part of that may be because I only did a, a 0.8x valuation on revenue. Um, so I think that made a big difference. I think the other thing that I did maybe was I wrote it up very clearly and I explained that it was super process driven, that they could speak to every single one of our clients, that it was all organic, that if someone came in and really added some paid for marketing, et cetera, et cetera, it could do incredibly well. Um, and maybe that that made a big difference. I didn't have a pitch deck, which which surprised me. I did have my financials. I did have projections. I did. I could show that I only lost two clients a year for the last three years. Um, I could show that people were on multiple seasons, right? They were on like season eight and season nine and season 10. So that showed that I had something good enough for people to stay. So the LTV was incredibly high. And our profit margin is 
event. So I think that was another sort of big win for someone. And we got lots. Um, we got lots of people signing the NDA. I think out of that, we probably got about 30 to 40% that did follow up with an email that asked like, what's your secret source? What's your defensible moat? You know, why are you selling? That was the biggest thing, right? The two biggest things that, that, that came out was why are you selling a business like this? And it seems to be very personality driven. Like everything that we look up on this is about you. And then it sort of sells off you. And if we take you out of it, will the company still run? Will the client still be looked after? So I think that was the biggest problem I had. But I had so many, so many inquiries that I, I didn't expect that at all. And I, you know, previously I've sold something or Flipper. Um, I'd sold something off another website, not to, to name and shame Flipper. You guys were great. No, <laughs> no disrespect. Um, but it was hard work. It was really sort of backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. This was the peer-to-peer -peer piece worked really well and the ability to add an attachment, send an attachment. And again, I suppose I've, I've done it so many times. I know that time kills more deals than anything else. So I was quick to always respond within five to 10 minutes, no matter what I was doing. I was quick to send, you know, my CSV or of my banking details that showed every single expense and every single piece of money that came in. Um, I was happy to say, you know, look me up. You'll, you'll see all the shows that I work on. I was quick to, to link in with every every single person that applied with me so they could see everything that I've put out and all the comments and all the engagement I think that made a big difference as well. Um, and, 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 you know, they say the proof is in the pudding, it's in the tasting. It was the fact that everyone kept coming back going, wow, you're so quick to respond. Wow. You're really quick at getting back with this answer. Um, didn't expect this much transparency. Okay. And then I would, I spoke to someone on your team and I said, what's the secret source? Because I'm always trying to find, you know, the unfair advantage. And they said, jump on a call as soon as you can. That's so then I, 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 I was literally about to pause and say, that's what we recommend to every seller that goes on a court because you have to sell your business. And it's it's surprising when I see founders list their business, someone signs an NDA and they don't like in sales, like the longer you let a sales lead sit without responding to it, even by just an hour, the response rate goes down dramatically. Yeah. And what you're doing by responding quickly with a buyer is you're showing that, you know, this is a, a serious acquisition offer or opportunity. And if they're going to work with you, they're getting kind of a preview of what is due diligence going to be like? What is transition going to be like? Are you trustworthy? Because there's also goodwill that you need to build with buyers, rapport, they have questions. And when you can you know, give the you know impression that you're easy to work with, you have your, you know, the items that are requested, you know, readily available. It makes a buyer feel much, much, much more comfortable and much more interested in buying your business. And it's such a simple thing. Just get on calls with buyers, answer the questions and be quick to respond. It it literally makes all the difference in the world. So Jason, you knocked it out. Who who on my team told you that? Just so uh, I can give them a shout out. That's a good question. I'll I'll find them on the on the email. I don't know it off the top of my head. I was gonna say Lloyd, but I'm told that there is no Lloyd. Like whoever the person was, it always pops up on the chat. You know, when you go in, you go, I've got a problem. And this little person comes up and it was always- no, the we, we, we got a Lloyd. Yeah, it's Lloyd. And then it's Lloyd. He was All fantastic. Right. Absolutely fantastic. All right. I'll, I'll make sure he gets kudos. Well, okay. So, so moving on. Um, so it sounds like you had a lot of buyers reaching out. Um, do you remember the number of NDAs that you had signed? Uh, I do actually 16 because my birthday is April 16th for those that want to say. 
gifts. Uh, 16, exactly 16 inquiries. Nice. And then so how did you find the right buyer out of that? How did you, you know, vet buyers? How did you narrow it down to the one that eventually acquired the business? So, and, and you don't have to name names or anything like, no, like no, that, no, but no, just no. on a high level would be great. Yeah. So I can tell you exactly. So the first thing I thought about was I, I'd like them to keep as much of my original team as possible, but I definitely want them to keep every single client that I'm working with. That was really important to me. So I needed to know that whoever I pass this on to needs to care as much or more than I do. And, you know, all jokes aside earlier about saying I cared less and less about the job, I still cared about my clients and about their messages and about their missions and about their stories that they were telling. Um, so I would do a lot of questions. I'd allow them to sort of bombard me, bombard me until the point where they were like, okay, I'm ready for an LOI. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I was like, I have some questions now. What does your first 90 days look like? How are you stepping in? You know, is it going to be a big shock where you come in and say, I'm the new owners and we're doing this and we're doing that? Or are you happy for a very slow, gradual, I'm, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. I do a handover. I'm still there. I'm still there. And then I sort of disappear into the darkness. That works really well for me. If you're not happy to do that, then I'm not happy to continue. The next thing I looked for was any sort of niche expertise. Could they bring anything in that I couldn't? And the top three were all people in that space. I mean, one of them was an amazing guy. And I'll do a shout out to John Cochran from a company, I think it's in Washington, DC called Rise 25. And they were in podcasting and they were in audio storytelling. And he'd worked for the White House as a, I think, a, a correspondent for the media. So I was like, this is a real great fit for what I do and for storytelling, right? Um, a problem with, with that is that most of our clients were UK or Europe. We only had a very small group in the US. And I was a bit worried about the time zone differences versus if I sell something to a German buyer, for example, because it's a lot closer. Um, and the third buyer wanted to completely change it, which is a bit unfortunate. So they wanted, although they are right in thinking there's a, there's a gap in the market for, for Spanish, and for Latin languages, um, they wanted to sort of take the process that I've got and completely change who they go after, as opposed to keeping what they've got and then also go after a brand new audience. So that brought me down to two pretty quickly. And then it was just as much correspondence as I could do. How fast did they respond to my emails? Which means they're probably going to respond a lot slower to my clients. How do they respond? You know, is their personality in their response? Is there kindness in their response? Do they care to ask questions as opposed to just firing off one-liners? Um, were the questions about service and process, or was it more about sales numbers and data? And that would tell me a lot about how they were going to go forward. And then I made my decision from that. Nice. That's also really smart too, because what you're also getting is a preview of what is due diligence going to be like. And I think kind of one of the most important unfortunate parts in an acquisition is you find the buyer, you sign an LOI, and then it just doesn't go through. And some early indicators are on the other, just same thing that I just said before, which is the buyer is slow to respond. They don't completely understand your business. They don't have a plan when going into due diligence. They don't have the funds on hand. Um, they don't really appear to understand, you know, what they're going to do with the business when it closes. So these are also good questions to ask up front. Like before I sign this, I always recommend a uh, a pre-LOI signing call, just like, hey, I'm going to sign this LOI. Uh, just wanted to run through, you know, once I sign this, what happens? And then schedule a meeting every week. And if all you have to talk about is the weather, just talk about the weather. But you you want to have that constant communication. And then also during that process, you continue to to sell your business and be responsive, point out opportunities for growth. And you know, that that's really, you know, how acquisitions I've seen, you know, close successfully the most. And it sounds like you did that. So moving now into 
the, the fun part, uh, uh, jokingly, um, tell me about, uh, due diligence. How did that go? How long did it last? Um, any learnings from, from you signed the LOI now, now we're, where are you in that journey? We didn't get to that. Now that was something quite interesting. So we're about to do the LOI. Everything was moving quite smoothly forward. And I, I suddenly got nervous about the fact that we were in different jurisdictions. Um, and I tweeted you and I said, Hey, uh, I can't seem to find someone who can deal with like UK to US. Everyone on your M&A list seems to be like an American specialist. Uh, is there anyone? And you were kind enough to tweet back and go, you know, check this out, check this out, check this out. And I was like, great. Okay. So now we've got a couple. And I reached out to a bunch of them on LinkedIn and, you know, saying, Hey, I found you on acquired.com. I'd love to have a quick chat because they're about to sign the LOA, but I'm a bit worried about the different like jurisdictions when it comes to the legal parameters. Um, and, and then what I would do as well is I would keep giving them updates on where we were. So like the New York Public Library reached out and said, hey, Jason, you did two talks last year that were super successful. Are you okay to do three talks this year about podcasting and about like the benefits for small business? And I was like, yes, yeah. so I would go back to the potential buyers and go, guess what? Like I'll do this and drive all the traffic to you. And they're like, oh my God, we really want to. So I kept like making it super exciting to why they should take me as soon as possible. And then a big university in America reached out and said, we'd like to work with you to do a podcast. And I'd go back and say, hey, I've got this. And they'd go, well, why can't we get this LOI? And I'd go, like, hold on to the LOI. Like, let me just find the right sort of specialist to talk to. And I ended up speaking to an incredible guy at Cooley's law firm and saying, hey, I've got all these people, but I'm not quite sure how it works. I know you worked in the UK and you worked in the US. Like, what do I need to know? You know, should it be Utah or Texas or like, what should the paperwork be in? And they kind of kindly enough said, why are you even doing an LOI? They seem like they're ready to buy. You seem to be slowing down. If this was a sales call, would you be given them more reasons to slow down? And I was like, no. And they went, here's the paperwork. Do an APA. It's even easier than a business sale. And you're done. And that's what we did. Very nice. Yeah. So Cooley is um, uh, one of one of my favorite law firms to recommend. It's it's run by an individual named Joe Wallen. I don't know if you if you came across yeah, him. But yeah, wonderful guy. Um, so I'm glad they, they were able to assist you like that. So, okay. So you, you got the, the, the asset purchase agreement signed and fun. I assume from there, it just escrow funds are wired over to you. And then you close, was there any sort of um, post-transition agreed upon or anything like that? Yes, exactly. So I'm still busy with that now, which, uh, and we've got a slight NDA, so I can't talk about so much about where it's moving to or how it's moving. Um, we've got a nice long process all the way till uh, end of September where I'm staying on and I'm helping with what I'm really good at and sort of advising on some of the stuff that they're looking to do moving forward. I'm still doing posts for them, which feels great. And it, it feels very much like I was a little bit nervous with this because Unlike any other business I've ever created, it, it felt more like my baby. You know, I'm, I'm pretty ruthless. Like I know, you know, kill your darlings. You build a business and you kind of work out what it's going to do. Like I normally I build businesses to sell. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know while I'm building it, what processes to put in place. So it's easy to sell. And I don't feel, you know, I, I don't have any emotions when it comes to the negotiation table. This is what I'm looking at. This is what I need. This is what I've gold for. But it felt different with a podcast company because of the clients, because of what we do and how we do it. And because it's about stories. And I wanted to think about what story I was leaving behind. So I was happy to sort of say, if you want to do a year, if you want to keep this running till the end of the year, I'll stay on until the end of the year. Like I'm happy to do it. I've, the only plans I've got are to travel and see some places around the world and start my own podcast again without any sort of outcome based on it. Like 
that's it. That's all I'm going to do. Um, and I'm going to go after your business of the acquired business. But outside of that, <laughs> I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to do research for like six months. And, and they were brilliant. They were like, nope, we're good. We're good with that. Um, if, if you're okay with it, we'll, 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 we'll keep it as it is. But if we need you to stay on longer, are you happy to do it? And it's actually been really, really good. And I think it's because of all the things we've said. It's about constantly speaking to one another. You know, we were constantly WhatsApping. We were iMessaging. We were emailing. We were using the platform. It was, we were jumping on Zoom calls. We were jumping on Riverside FM so I could explain like what's a better podcast thing than, than Zoom is and um, talking to the team and talking to clients. And it's it's been fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. That's great. I love how you were so open to uh, a transition plan because that also widens your, your interested buyer pool as well. Because I always say, you know, when you sell a business, there's so many you know, let's, let's call them skeletons in the closet. They're just things that you don't know about, um, you know, but having you there allows the owner, the new owner of the business to have confidence that, you know, they're not going to buy it and then you're gone. And then they don't know how one part works where it take you 30 seconds. Oh, like, Oh, that part connects with this, whatever it may be. And it could take a week if, I'm the new owner and I have to kind of figure it out. So what you're doing is de-risking the acquisition and then also ensuring that, you know, what you've built will, you know, go on and be successful with the new owner. So it's really, you know, win-win on both sides. And then it definitely um, helps increase the chances of an acquisition closing just so when a buyer knows that, you know, once they send you money that like you'll be there to ensure the success of the business because they're typically acquiring it to grow it farther and breathe new energy into it. That was great, Jason. I think you knocked it out of the park. I'm happy for you. Thank, thank you very much. Um, again, like I am, if anything, I'm a student and I, the one thing I know is that I know nothing. So I think I've just been, like I did your entire course over the weekend. I watched everything on the space. I must've tweeted you I don't know, a million times saying, what about this? And what about this? And your team have been brilliant. I spoke to one of your technical guys about the platform, what I enjoyed and what I didn't. Um, and it's been, it's been such a great move. Like I said, like I've been very honest. I think I even tweeted you saying, Hey, I'm going to come off to your space uh, in SMBs. I'm not going to go off to your exact thing. Is that something you're going to go after? And you were like, Nope, we're not, we're not looking at it right now. Not boring businesses. And I was like, great. Like, I think it's such a fun space. I don't think I ever realized like how, if you do it right, but I also think there's a lot of people in this space that don't understand the importance of sales, that you're not really selling a business as a package. You're you're selling. You're, your first job is selling, right? Your first job is all the things we learn in sales, replying quickly, being transparent, being honest, de-risking as much as possible, giving options. Like one of the things that kept coming up was seller financing, but no one ever wrote like, hey, are you open to seller financing? Here are my thoughts on seller financing. It was always like, are you open to seller financing? Yes or no? And I was thinking, well, that's, you're not selling me. You're telling me. So my answer is going to be no. No, but if you've written, would you be open to seller financing? I'm thinking over three years, if we hit certain markers, I would have been like, sure, I'm more than happy. That's a sales call. Like talk me into it. Yeah. Um, so I've loved it. I've really, I didn't think I'd enjoy it as much as I, as I did. And I, I've loved the entire process from start. That's great to hear. And, and, and Jason, it's, it's been wonderful hearing your story, but um, as a, as a final question, I know you say, you know, nothing, but it seems like, you know, a, a lot. If you just had to kind of, you know, maybe three top pieces of advice for another startup founder looking to sell their business, what would they be? Number one, remember McDonald's. McDonald's doesn't do well because it sells burgers and fries and Coke. 
and occasionally milkshakes. It does well because it has an operation manual that it can be handed to absolutely anyone and they can immediately become a McDonald's owner. That is massive. So as you're building your business, whether right from the beginning or now that you realize you're going to start selling, create an operational manual with everything in it. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. No, um, well, I, said, I, I, you got, I said three, so you got two more. Well, I, yeah. I, lo- I love that example and I completely agree. Thank you. The second is realize that if you can de-risk your sale, you will have a better chance of selling. That's massive. If you can say things like, I'll stay on for a period, I'm happy to do certain KPIs, you know, I'm, I believe in what I do, I stand behind it, you know, integrity is really important. Care about the sale as much as you care about the business and about what that period is going to feel like, because they will remember that. I'm, as I said, I'm from an ex-events background, people I remember two things, the peak emotion of the night and their exit, which is why you do goodie bags at events. So that was massive. And the third thing is, Time kills more deals than indecision does. So try and move at pace, constantly reassuring, questioning, testing as you move through, but move at a speed, create event horizons. By this stage, we should be here. By this stage, we should be here. Think of it as dating, sorry, less as dating and more as courting. The plan is to get married, not just to have a bunch of dates. I love that advice, especially the last point in terms of time really does kill deals. And just having a simple strategy going into an acquisition, and you touched on this with your first point by being prepared, have your books in order, have your processes laid out because people People will ask for them. And if you're able to provide them quickly and the response isn't, oh, I'm going to need to go make that, you know, buyers, again, will see that as you've really de-risked the business and you're making it easy for them to wrap their head around this business that you've built. So again, it sounds like you you did a fantastic job, Jason. I hope to get you on this podcast again, uh, maybe someday in the future when you sell another business. I would love that. Definitely going to come to you first. Sounds good. Well, Jason, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you or your story, where's uh, where's the best place to find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Jason on Scott. I'm on LinkedIn where I'll be talking about my next adventures. And I'm going to release a podcast soon, just sharing the next six months and what I'm looking to do and who I'm working with and who I'm talking to. Awesome. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, congrats again on the acquisition. Thank you. And thank you again for what you've built. It really is a fantastic piece of kit. I appreciate that. I got to give a shout out to my team though, because I'm not technical. So they, they get all the credit, but I'll, I'll be sure to relay that. All right, Jason. Great chat and I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Startup Acquisition Stories podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, make sure to like and follow on your preferred channel. If you know a friend or colleague that's thinking about selling their startup and don't know where to start, please share it with them. For more information on Acquire.com and how we can help you start conversations with serious buyers with acquisition targets ranging from 50,000 up to 50 million or more, check us out at Acquire.com. We'll see you next time.